Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Uh, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here at Nicholson Library. We're here with Ron and Lynn Pinnerash, and Rachel Woody is joining me on the interview as well. It's March 4th, 2016. We're in the Nicholson Library. And our first question, as Lynn, you already know, if you've watched a few of our interviews before, is why wine? And this is for both of you. Why wine? <laughs> okay. Well, I married into it, so I don't know. <laughs> Very different answers. Yeah. Um, my, my, my story is that I had actually started out in botany. I actually worked at the Smithsonian Institute when I was in high school because I was from the East Coast. And I met some really great people in the botany department, so they encouraged me to go to UC Davis, University of California at Davis. And so I went off to UC Davis, who was about as far away from home as it could possibly be, and actually in the dorm met a group of young guys from Napa, and they convinced me that I didn't need to fly back home to Washington, D.C., that I could actually go spend the summer in Napa working. So I got my first job in the wine industry right my first year, freshman year of college, I just absolutely loved it. It kind of combined botany and the sciences, which I'm very much interested in. So it seemed like a great opportunity, and it's been wine ever since. For me, it was, well, Lynn and I, I was teaching, and uh, Lynn and I looked at each other one day and said, well, if we're going to do this, we need to do it now. Um, we were no longer spring chicken, and um, the opportunity came up, and we started very small. Um, 125 cases when Lynn was still at Rex Hill Vineyards, and then slowly grew the brand to the point now where, you know, 18 years later, um, we're 15,000 cases. We built a winery, we bought land, had partners, bought them out. So it's, for me, it's been kind of a, the perfect world in the sense that I got to teach for 20 years in the public sector and then be an entrepreneur, you know, the last 18 years. And I think it's, it's worked out really well for both of us. And how did you two meet? Ooh. Oh, whoa. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that's a, actually it's a great story. And uh, you know what? I'll, I'll, let's do Lynn's version first, <laughs> and then I'll edit that. Yeah. I, I had my college roommate for many years um, was always introducing me to men, uh, unsuccessfully. <laughs> and she kept trying to get me to, oh, she was living in Tahoe, and Ron was teaching in Tahoe, and they were housemates, not roommates, but housemates. And she kept trying to tell me that I needed to come up to Tahoe and meet this guy, Ron. He seemed pretty awesome. And I was like, I'm so done with you and just meet a man. That, no, no, no. So I put her off for about a year, I believe. And so finally it was Ron's 30th birthday. And she said, he just wants to come down and have a winery tour and maybe go on a ride with a big cyclist at the time. And so I said, all right, fine. He can come down. So. Yes, I, w I was actually, I was taking a wine appreciation class at the local junior college up in Tahoe, and so I wanted to extend my wine knowledge, uh, and Elisa had mentioned Lynn was a winemaker down in Napa Valley at Stag's Leap Wine Cellars, and I said, great. So I had this old beat up 1973 Land Cruiser, I threw my bike on top and drove down. I was a little bit late. Um, I broke like down. <laughs> so Lynn had already gone to bed, and um, she opens the door, and there was a choice. I think there was Schlitz in the uh, refrigerator or Deutsch Champagne. Well, we ended up having the champagne and had this amazing weekend, and 17 days later, we were engaged. 
So wow. And that was 29 years ago. Yeah. Good so, for you guys. Yeah. So when you just know, you know. You know. We both dated. Yeah, we kind of knew the routine and we were ready. Then when he proposed, I did say, you must be joking. I'm taken off guard, too. It's the answer everyone wants to hear. Yeah, <laughs> so romantic. <laughs> Um, so, when you came up from California to Oregon, we'll backtrack a little bit later, but I'm just curious, what were the original, what were the initial differences you noticed in the industries, and, and how have they changed? Oh, it's changed so much, and I think a lot of people don't really realize how much it's changed. Um, when I first got up here, I was used to kind of the infrastructure of Napa Valley, and that, you know, you, you needed a hose bib or you needed a washer that was specific to a certain pump. You could just drive down to the local, you know, winemaker shop as such and pick it up. There was one in St. Helena, there one was Napa. It was really super easy just to go find the, what equipment you needed. And I get up to Rex Hill, and the first thing I identify is they don't have the proper hose bibs, and, and they really need to change things out to be truly a functioning winery. And I start calling around and there's nowhere to go. You have to call down to Napa, order it, and then wait. And you know, we didn't have like FedEx today and all that at the time. So it was usually a week or two later when your piece would finally show up. And so that was really difficult, um, ordering yeast or any kind of chemical that you needed for the wine industry was all coming out of pretty much from California. And so, you know, Davison's Auto Supply then started slowly doing this equipment shop, and that was just like this amazing experience for everybody. <laughs> you could walk in there and go, oh, he actually has the yeast that I had to normally wait for. I can just pick up a brick of it. Um, so that changed, and there wasn't really a lot of services, like the no, there was no mobile bottling. Um, finding somebody who could fix a pump, there weren't people up here who were actually experienced in fixing winery equipment, and a lot of times it meant waiting for a service technician to come up, or you had to fly them up to come up. <laughs> So it just it, it took a lot longer to get things done, and it really took a lot of pre-planning and foresight to stage your day or your winemaking um, because it wasn't quite as readily available. Now, could you outline for us sort of like the, the resume points to what ended for both of you into launching Pinner Ash? Like, I know, of course, Lynn, you've got the more extensive wine resume, but what were the things that you both did from a career perspective that got you to where you are right now? Well, I think for me, it was um, basically having started off in the Napa Valley and having so many great just like meetings with people who then encouraged me to go on. I was working at Domaine Chandon and I met a man named Gino Zapponi and he said, it looks like you really are very interested in all of this. Maybe you should consider spending instead of just a summer working in the industry, you should spend a year working in the industry. So he actually encouraged me to take it, like a gap year at Davis, which I did do. And I went to work at Chateau St. Jean, which happened to be his daughter was the enologist there, or actually she became the assistant winemaker eventually. And so then I got that experience of being at Chateau St. Jean. And then from there, I was immediately offered a job upon graduation at Stag's Leap Wine Cellar. So for me, I'm thinking this industry is fantastic. You, know? <laughs> you just go from great job to great job. Um, but then after about four years in the Napa Valley working at Stag's Leap Wine Cellars, I was realizing there was a huge glass ceiling in the Napa Valley and it was very, very mm -hmm. frustrating. And Ron actually, we had met at that point and he encouraged me to maybe explore outside of the industry. And so I was actually thinking about maybe leaving the industry and exploring some other opportunity or other career opportunity. And I got a call from Paul Hart at Rex Hill, who said, well, why don't you come to Oregon and just take a look around? And so I flew up and he offered me the job on the spot after interviewing Matt one day, gave me the job if I wanted it. So went home and talked to Ron and he's like, why not? We're young, we don't have kids. Um, he yeah, felt, 
Well, <laughs> well we were very young at the yeah. time, at least I was. Um, <laughs> so he, yeah, he just thought, felt like as a teacher he could pretty much land anywhere. And so he, he's the one, he likes to say, he kicked me out the door because I was very hesitant to leave Napa Valley. It was so ingrained in me that, you know, winemaking is in Napa. That's the mm -hmm. only place you should be. So he kicked me out the door. And I went up basically about two days after we got married mm -hmm. and started working at Rexhill uh, for a couple of months until the school year ended and he could join me. And he came up and did immediately get hired. Um, worked for the, it was Durham, right? Durham. Yeah, Durham. Durham Tiger, Elementary Tiger School District. Right. And so I spent 14 years at Rexhill, working at Rexhill. And I think that for me, it was a great learning experience. It was not only winemaking, I progressed into, I was president and I was chief operating officers, you know, all these fancy titles, which just meant I was doing everything. And it was great because it learned me, it learned me, <laughs> it learned me a lot. <laughs> it taught me a lot. Um, things, how to run a business, how not to run a business, you know, how to integrate profitability into winemaking, which is sometimes very difficult. Um, just all the contracts and leases and things. I was exposed to all of that. And so I felt like I actually got great experience through Paul Hart's business. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what Ron was mentioning. Then we started talking about it. People kept asking, when are you going to start your own project? And we really hadn't thought about it, but then thought, well, why not? No, there was no intent for many years. We were, you know, we were happy. I mean, we had just had two children. They were very, very young. And again, I go back to the fact that I think that we we are risk takers, I mean calculated risk, and it was the timing was right. In 1998 we made our first wine, still at Rex Hill, um, and then evolved into the point where for many years it was just the two of us. Um, and I would I embraced the physicality of winemaking. Um, he was my cellar rat. Yeah. <laughs> but then again, you know, I love people, so I would go out on the road to New York or Chicago. San Francisco and peddle our wine, and it just we were we would do this leapfrog. Um, one would stay behind with mm. small children, and the other one would go out and market. Um, certainly, harvest was always a challenge, but we actually have a neighborhood in which you know it does take a village. We had lots of friends taking you know our kids in when we were late at night, and um, you know I, I think we we were real good about keeping that balance though through yeah. the years i think we said no to a lot of events um industry events and so forth because oh, it was really amazing the first time we actually traveled together and did a marketing trip together yeah. it's like oh this is so nice you get to eat dinner with somebody instead of sitting there and pretending like you're having a great time reading your book as you eat by yourself <laughs> so, yeah. I like now, it. you know we've come full circle now we have a staff of 12 we hired our first general manager last year so you know in a sense, Linair stepping back from day-to-day -day operations, um, and it's been nice. Well, I wouldn't say day-to-day -day operations. We're stepping back from the day-to-day -day management. Management, I mean, yes. The winemaking is still very much. We're able to travel together for the first time. Did you find that the roles when you when you were transitioning, we were still working at Rex Hill and transitioning mm -hmm. into into making your own brand? Did you find that the roles came naturally, or did you have to kind of consciously carve them out? Um, I think they, they, they basically came naturally because, I mean, the winemaking has always been my background and, and so it was very easy just to take that on as, as mine. I think the hardest part was more from the business side of thing. Um, having had the experience from the business side of things and trying to try to figure out what the best moves would be, we would have some, some pretty interesting conversations at times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Ron is, is very much, you know, don't worry about it, it'll be fine. And I'm sitting there looking at the numbers going, how's this going to be fine? Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, big picture, small picture. Yeah. Detail, but, detail. Yeah, but it, yeah. It, it works though. I think there's kind of a yin and yang thing going on. I think we complement each other um, in that aspect. And it, it's, you know, it's always challenging when you're married to your business partner. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't always work. But I can honestly say that, you know, for the 18 years now, it's, um, we see the end game and it, it, the business is thriving and um, I think we're well positioned for the future. Yeah. So when you made your first in 1998 for Pinarash, what made you decide to launch Pinarash and go out on your own? I think that it was because we, uh, so many times people had asked, you know, what we were, what, what was kind of the next step for us and so we with Paul Hart's permission put together a small bottling just thinking that it would just be fun to have your name on a label you know a very small amount whatever it may be and I for us it became a big issue when we were going out and I was out representing Rex Hill but people wanted to talk to me about Penarash and I just respected Paul Hart so much that I felt like this was real conflict that I couldn't continue to do this and so that's kind of what got us started talking about you know well how do we manage this if it continues to grow and people have interest in it what are we going to do? And kind of the, the choice became we probably would have to launch and do it on our own. And at that point, we did have kind of fortuitous meeting that we met mm -hmm. some people who would then become our partners. And they actually originally wanted us just to help them build a winery and then realized how much work it would take and they didn't have the experience. So they said, why don't we just help you guys grow Panarash instead? And for us, that was the ultimate dream that we were both able to leave our jobs and pursue Penarash full time, and it was thanks to their initial investment, mm -hmm. which we were able to do that. Mm -hmm. Going back to when you started at Rex Hill, you, you talk about Paul Hart kind of calling you. Was it out of the blue? Had you applied? No, um, I had never even looked to Oregon as in an area for winemaking. Um, quite honestly, I was very naive about anything Oregon. Um, which is ironic as you go out on the road and people are naive and you're like, how can you be naive about that <laughs> I was. Um, a headhunter, he was working with a headhunter and a headhunter had said, would you ever consider a woman? I have this woman and I hadn't even applied to be in her portfolio of people who were looking for a job. It was just by room, word of mouth that people heard that I was thinking about leaving Stagsley Wine Cellars and was really interested in doing something else that my name became a name that was considered at the time. So. And you describe yourself as the first female winemaker hired in Oregon. Uh, because there are so many firsts in Oregon, could you explain your definition of what that means? I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm very cognizant of there's many people who, the pioneers that came before and they worked together. And in, in the case, most cases, or if not in all cases, it was usually a husband and wife team and the husband mm -hmm. was usually the winemaker. Mm -hmm. And so, I believe, because I don't know of any others, but there may be, and that's why I say hired, because I believe that I was the first woman that was hired as not a family member, you know, professionally hired to come up and be involved in, an, in a winery as an employee as such, and I had no ownership, et cetera. And so that's why I kind of, I want to put the little parens around it, because I do respect that there are other families that worked very hard as pioneers and came together. But, you know, there was that kind of, we call it the misgeneration sometimes, we joke about mm -hmm. it. You have the pioneers, then you have the generation of like Rob Stewart, Laurent, Joe Dobbs, myself, who all came up technically trained, experienced, mm -hmm. started running people's wineries for them, trained their children, who then became the next generation in the Oregon wine industry. And it's kind of like, well, there's a middle middle tier here. I'm a middle child, <laughs> so middle I love to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. Is that evident? So, 
yeah. So that's kind of why I, I kind of describe myself that way. Is that you know you do I do honor that I'm recognizing that there are many others that came before in, in that aspect. Mm -hmm. so what was your experience like then as an early female winemaker in a state with predominantly male? Did you feel you had to prove yourself extra? How was the reception from other industry members? I think the the reception was always warm. Um, I wouldn't say it was overly friendly. Um, the guys had their golf groups that would go off and golf on a regular basis and I, I can't say that I've ever been invited to go golfing um, but you know events would take place and I was included in those events and you were brought in in those events I always remember my first Nick's back room experience where there was this technical group that would bring wines we'd sit down we'd taste the wines and then we'd have lunch and I walked into Nick's and I'm just like ooh where do you sit you know because <laughs> all these guys are all together and they're all very comfortable with each other and I'm the young woman I'm 26 walking into this room of men and I think if it hadn't been for like Terry Castile and Ted Castile who embraced me and to this day are our closest friends in the industry, mm -hmm. I don't know exactly how I would have maybe navigated those waters. They introduced me to a lot of people, mm -hmm. made sure that I was comfortable and, 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 and taken care of. I mean, even to this day, Ted makes sure like we'll be in an event and Ron's not there and Ted will race it, you know, Ron's not there, I need to make sure that Lynn's comfortable. So I have to love him for that. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Did you feel you had to prove yourself? And then, Ron, I'd love to hear your perspective as her partner <laughs> on this. Yeah, I think that um, I think I worked harder and maybe spoke up a little louder just mm -hmm. to make sure that my voice was heard. I think I was laughing because Louisa Ponzi once said that Lynn Penarash, she's so strong, you know, and I didn't know whether that was a, a, a positive or a negative. Mm -hmm. And so I confronted her on once. I said, what do you mean by that? And she goes, well, I used to find you kind of aggressive, but now having taken over the realm of my parents' winery, I realized that women have to be much more aggressive to be able to get what they need to get done. And so she now recognized that as a strength rather than in a negative. But at the time, it was interpreted as a negative. And so that was kind of a little eye-opening that, you know, people thought of me being a little more aggressive than maybe I thought I was, but just trying to achieve things. I felt like mm -hmm. I was constantly having to put myself up in positions that weren't necessarily comfortable, mm -hmm. but I felt I needed to do that because I was representing a brand and I was trying to make the best possible wine I could. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. And I think, you know, Lynn is so close to it that sometimes she doesn't see the respect or feel the respect. And that's, that's human nature. And so mm -hmm. I've often, you know, been in a room and it's, it's quite obvious that, you know, that respect flows to Lynn naturally, um, you know, in a difficult vintage or a challenging vintage, the phone, you know, rings off the hook because they, they know Lynn's technical background, they know that she understands Oregon viticulture, she doesn't panic, and so, and very detail-oriented, as we've discussed earlier. So that's, that's an industry-wide respect, um, and sometimes you're harder on yourself than you know, others around you. And so I, I, I think that she's essentially carved a position here that's somewhat iconic in the industry. Um, you know, it's 28 years in Oregon, and that, I don't, it's almost 29. Almost 29, yeah. So there aren't very many people that can claim that. Mm -hmm. But again, and it goes back to the issue of, of you know, um, a woman versus a man in a, in a, in a, in a position of, of um, I guess, decision making. You know, we're often more, we're, we're, we're harder on women than we are on men. Men can get away with a lot. 
And so I think sometimes the perception is that Lynn is very you know, focused and very direct, where you know, a guy can get away with that. Mm -hmm. We're much more judgmental with women. But I think we've gotten beyond that. Mm -hmm. You know, in the industry, I think it's evolved to the point now where there are so many women, um, because of Lynn, um, that are now integrated into the industry. And if you, I, I guarantee if you look at you know, the winemakers coming in, it's a higher percentage of women. Talk a little, bit, a little bit about your wine history. You talk about taking a wine appreciation class. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what were your impressions of the industry as you got into it? And what were your impressions of the Oregon industry when you moved up here? Well, it was very, you know, it was fast forward, let's see, 12, 15 years when we had already landed. So I had already integrated myself in the sense that, you know, going to events on a regular basis, I knew a lot of people. Certainly it was much easier for me. Um, I, I see the industry changing, certainly. You know, the early years, 1988, 89, 90, you know, it was not uncommon for everyone just to meet down in Dundee and have meals together and discuss. Um, and there's been a natural evolution of the industry where it's much larger, maybe a little bit more, you know, maybe a little bit more impersonal in, in, in a sense. And that's just human nature when you grow from what? 39 wineries. 49 when I 49 started. 49 in yeah. 1988 to 700 now. Mm -hmm. um, it's much more competitive. But we've, we've, we have a niche. We have our friends. We have the people that we trust within the industry that we can share information with. And I think that collaboration is still very much alive. Um, at least in our group. It probably just doesn't take place in the levels that it used to because it was just so much smaller that you yeah. could have Dick Erath in the room and then you know I could be in the room and we could all be sharing information but now because of the there's so many wineries that you just you have now different groups that share and yeah. collaborate it's not an industry-wide collaboration it might be more in a particular geographic location yeah. and but, the, but, but, you know, from a winemaking standpoint, the bar has been raised, which is a good thing. I mean, mm -hmm. new blood, new and, um, knowledge has come into the industry over the last 29 years. So that's, that's a good thing. It's good for Oregon. It's good for brand Oregon. And I still think we, as a group, float the boat, you know, for the brand. Um, what we're doing at Willamette Valley, you know, Pinot, um, the, the, the new kind of push now to target you know, Pinot Noir in the Willamette Valley is, is an indicator of, yeah, we, we, we want to work together and brand Oregon. And what was your, <coughs> excuse me, what was your initial uh, interest in wine? Why, why were you taking the wine appreciation course in the first place? Oh, I was just curious. Just curious? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I was still teaching. It was just, it, this class popped up on the radar and thought that would be very interesting. And I really had not drunk wine before that. Um, He's curious about a lot of things. Yeah. He? he never, yeah, I've, he I've never a had a cup of coffee before he met me, and now we have to grind our beans in a particular way. You know? yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. This is the man that didn't drink coffee 28 right. years ago. <laughs> yeah. We have a lot of interests. And I think it goes back to the point where, you know, the balance in our life. We, we have many interests, even outside the wine industry. Um, and we've, we've always strived for that. Yeah, it probably helps to keep you sane, especially when you launch your own. It does. Yeah. So I have a question for you first, Lynn, and it's, were you consciously a pioneer? To be followed up by Ron, was Lynn consciously a pioneer? Oh. Consciously oh. a pioneer. Wow. Um, I don't think I was consciously a pioneer. I was just so excited as a young woman to be handed the reins um, 
And I skipped. I was literally from an enologist at Stag's Loop Wine Cellars to a winemaker. So I skipped the whole apprenticeship aspect. Mm -hmm. And so I was handed such a, an amazing gift, yet such an amazingly overwhelming experience that I don't think I even thought about it. I just thought about the fact that this is a great opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, and then once Ron moved up, we started exploring Oregon and realizing this is a great opportunity, not only from a winemaking standpoint, but from the adventure. Quality I mean, of life. Quality of life. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what to add to that in the sense that, you, you know, it was the opportunity, and I think we've always taken opportunity. Um, we don't shy away from it. And again, when you start a winery, that's, uh, everyone kind of goes down, goes down that road. It takes a special person because they're, they're a huge risk financially, um, emotionally. Um, it's, it's not easy, and I, I, we always, you know, snicker a little bit when people say, oh, I'd love to be in the industry. Well. We have no regrets, but they don't understand the grit behind, you know, establishing a brand. Um, it's it's a lot of fun to make wine, but to sell wine is a whole nother issue. It's extremely competitive, but we've never shied away from that. So I, I think, again, I go back to the fact that it was a, an amazing opportunity for Lynn. You know, she just jumped in with two feet, didn't look back. You can't now. No. <laughs> <laughs> Just today, it's okay to look back to today. Okay. Uh, what kind of organizations and committees have you been involved in in the industry? Wow, um, uh, a lot. Yeah. Um, I started off, I, I was a president and on the board of IPNC for about eight years. Um, then I served on OPC on the executive committee for eight to ten, I'm not even sure, because it was kind of two different terms there that I worked with them. Um, for a while there, when Women for Wine Sense first came to Oregon, I was on that initial chapter, getting it started, uh, working with them for about a year. And let's see what else. I've organized the ASCV Northwest chapter, um, which has failed to really launch past the first three or four years when I was actively involved in it. Um, where else? We have a tasting group that's actually been pretty active in, in doing and designing experimentation in the industry that has kind of, in a way, helped shape the way we, we thin our vineyard sites, different yeast trials. We've been tasting together actively for almost 17 years now. So, in many ways. Oh, oh, industry-wide, industry um, I've sat on committees for Salud, I've sat on committees for OPC, currently on the committee for our first annual Willamette Pinot Noir barrel auction in April. Mm -hmm which is exciting. Um, prior to that, you know, I, again, it goes back to the balance. I was on school board, mem school board member for Riverdale Schools, um, just joined the board for uh, Children's Cancer Association. So mm -hmm. again, it goes back to that balance. I think we've always strived for that um, non-industry. Um, we're, we're in a situation now, we're fortunate that we, we're doing more philanthropy, so we're kind of looking outside the industry. Mm -hmm. um, worked out. What were some of the challenges and the successes on the various, on your various board experiences? Um, the biggest challenge I think really started taking place, it got, it's later on in my experiences, I mean IMPNC was so new and so much fun because any idea was a new idea which was always great. 
but to keeping keeping that fresh got harder and harder for me uh, on serving on the board because we needed to bring in new people and for the longest time it was just this core collective group of people that were both on IPNC they were on, on OPC's board they were on the Lamb Valley Winery Association board it was like the same people trying to come up with three different creative ideas and so that was hard keeping it new and fresh but then as OPC for me the thing that I found more and more challenging was just the lack of, of people's ability to respond sometimes. You know, you're trying to put together a seminar, you need wines delivered, or, and you spend all your time basically trying to chase people down and get them to answer your question, bring you their wine. And I just, after a while, said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little overwhelmed trying to help you, you know, market and sell your wine uh, when I could be doing something else completely different. And that's one reason why I kind of stepped down from the OPC board at that point. I just felt like it was getting harder and harder to get Oregon winemakers focused on the actual event that they had signed up for. So I needed to take a break for a while. So who were some of the early Oregon wine people that you worked with? And particularly, I'm interested in, you talked about sort of that missed gap in between the pioneers and the second gen. I'd love to hear who those people were and also some of the stories that you have uh, from those experiences. Well, I think that uh, Laurent and myself, um, Joe Dobbs, we started off, we, we spent a lot of time together and talking about what we were trying to do in the industry and trading information, finding vineyard sites that might may or may not work. One of us would be up looking at a vineyard site and say, hey, but I think this might work better for your program. Maybe you're interested mm. in that. So there was a lot of sharing of information in the earlier years. And it's kind of fun to see now how the three of us, our businesses have gone in three completely different directions, um, which is kind of, you know, at the time we all thought, I think we're all planning on basically doing the same thing, and we've all three done very, very different things. And so those are kind of the, the earlier years was just hanging out and spending time. And then, you know, I, I joke, Josh Bergstrom came and worked for me when he was 21 years old. He turned 21 at Rex Hill, and he didn't know how to even hook up a p pump you know, we hosted the pump at all. And so we jokingly referred to him as Captain Pup because he was so young. And I, you know, you look at him. And I love writing lists out of people that have actually worked for me in one shape or form. Mm -hmm. And now what they're doing, you know, Union Wine Company, Ryan Harms, he was a guy out of New York who was kind of interested in the wine industry but wasn't sure, would I take him as an intern? I'm like, oh yeah, come on out, you're interesting, let's do it. And now Union Wine Company is huge with his great little cans. Right. So those are the, the, the times I reflect on and really I'm, I'm blown away at the success of some of the people that, it, you know, started with working with me and mentored up into the industry, so. Mm -hmm. What about the other side of that? What about the people you looked to as, as mentors when you were starting out? Oh, that would have been Terry Castile. I mean, I looked to him very much. I loved talking to him. Um, who else? Well, Steve Dorner came along and we were, you know, more age appropriate, but um, his experience were very different than mine, so I enjoyed talking to him and spending time discussing what he was doing. And I still looked to, you know, Dickie Rath at one time, I remember going out into a vineyard and listening to him talk, and it was kind of funny because he was, we were both supposed to be presenting, but he knew so much more than I did. And so I just kind of stepped back and somebody said, well, aren't you going to say anything? I'm like, what can I say? I mean, <laughs> Dickie Rath is in the room. so. Just getting to know the older, the original pioneers. I remember spending some time with Susan Sokolblosser talking about a woman in the industry, and you know she was a strong woman also, and how you manage your time and mm -hmm. children. Um, 
So those are the people that I think I probably mostly spent my time with. Yeah, and you know, I mean, from a, just a branding and marketing and brand organ, David Adelsheim has always mm -hmm. been very you know, generous with very his time. Yes. Yeah. Lots of respect mm -hmm. for David. And Ron, for you, especially being a little bit more of an outsider coming into the organ wine industry, who did you find a kinship with, or who did you go to? I, you know, it's not really individuals because I kind of I came in, you know, with both feet, and just just it, it was such a um, I, I, I guess a whirlwind those first couple of years mm -hmm. that. I mean, we would market together with people. I mean, that was the Oregon thing to do. We would go on trips together. We were with uh, Northwest Core, was our broker. So we would, we would market with, well, at the time it was Bergstrom. Um, who else was there? It was Laurent, Selena. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, and then eventually A to Z joined. So it was that core group going out and marketing together. Um, but no one, you know, individually, you know, I, I do, again, I have a lot of respect for David Alsheim because he does put in a lot of time, mm -hmm. um, selfishly, for Oregon. You mentioned a, a minute ago, we're talking about uh, how difficult it is marketing and selling mm -hmm. wine. I'm curious how, it's, 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 it's a point that comes up in all of our interviews, how, how much, how little people enjoy selling wine, how much they like making it, how little they like mm -hmm. dealing with the selling. So I'm curious how you approach a challenge like that. Well, I think what happened back, well, when we knew, especially in 2008, when we knew the economy was going um, south, uh, we actually put a lot of resources in to direct to consumer. Hmm. We actually hired someone to come on board on staff. And the idea or the premise was that, you know, we all know the margin wholesale versus direct, and we wanted that direct margin. And so we were very, um, aware of the relationships you establish with your wine club members, mm -hmm. um, with your accounts. And so, I mean, from day one, we, we, we understood how important that was, but I think we just ramped it up. Well, I, we realized. I mean, I remember yeah. the days where we always thought when we first got started, and even to this day, we still insist on it, that um, when a, you had a customer come in and say, buy an a six pack of something, you know. Mm -hmm. We wrote a personal thank you note and yeah. signed it. And I remember there were days we'd be staring at a pile of a hundred of these that needed to be written. And you're just like, are we, are we really that committed to doing this? And we're like, oh yes, we have to do this. And so those are the days our kids probably don't look very fondly upon us, yeah. um, where we'd have stuff spread out on the table and we would make them sticker envelopes because you know email didn't exist so you could not send out mass email blasts to people and so mm -hmm. we would have to get things printed up and we always took great care to make mm -hmm. sure it was a quality type of printing we weren't doing cheap printing we extended ourselves to the point where sometimes you're thinking how much is this going to cost us to do this but we have mm -hmm. to do it and I think people responded really well to that, yeah. that we were creating these materials that were attractive and enticed them to come out to the facility and join us. And then Ron and I would be present at those events, taking people on tours, mm -hmm. tasting, talking about wine. You know, I think that made a huge difference, that we were committed and it was our project and we were there committed mm -hmm. to the project. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt, yeah, it was all about, it's all about relationships. And I think for 18 years, we've been establishing those relationships. And even beyond just the, the consumer, even our, with our distributors. We were very um, involved owners from day one. So you had mentioned your children. 
did they essentially grow up in the winery? And I know they're sort of college aged now. Do you think they might get into the industry? I think we scarred them. My uh, <laughs> daughter does not remember fondly having to dump spit buckets at every memorial and Thanksgiving weekend <laughs> event. Um, yeah. Well, our son can drive a forklift and work he's a actually, pump. Yeah, he's, he's very good. Pretty actually. good. But you know, our intent, and this was from day one, was that they need to go out and do their own thing first. And if they want to come back later, that's great. But there's no entitlement. Um, they need to work for other people. They need to follow their dream, potentially. Mm -hmm. um, and then come back if they choose. But there's no pressure. Yeah. No pressure. And our, our daughter is, is very, very creative and has really seen some great success in the music world. And we just think it's very exciting that she has a passion that is creative also, but it doesn't have to necessarily be wine. And our, mm -hmm. our son is super excited because he's working in, an, in, in, in the field that he graduated in and he's getting some great experiences there. And so it's just fun to watch them grow on their own and maybe achieve things on their own and not feel like they have to come back to mom and dad's business. Yeah. So, right. Yeah, they're very independent. As in, we haven't heard from Taylor in about... <laughs> <laughs> One question that I do like to ask couples is this industry, historically, is very hard on relationships. Yes. How have you guys made it work? I think it goes, I think it goes back to the, um, you know, the diversity of our lives. I think we have lots of interest outside the industry. Um, we're not afraid to say no, yeah. because I think you can get, fall into that trap um, of working all the time and, and it, it can be very extremely demanding even beyond just the business but the social aspects. I think we're both um, extremely self-disciplined and I think that's helped. Yeah. Um, we have a great deal of respect for each other and it's always been family first to be honest with you. I think our kids kept us grounded. I think that a lot of people, we've actually heard people even say this, that they envy our lifestyle. And one of the things that we, we both enjoy doing is that we like adventure. Mm -hmm. And we're not afraid to try an adventure and go on an adventure. And that's kind of one of the things that keeps you grounded is we just got back from Cuba. We've been to Kilimanjaro. We've been to Everest. But you go and you see how other people experience their lives. And you come back to, you know, I'm in the wine industry. <laughs> and it really puts you, I think it grounds you to realize that, yeah, this is a luxury project. We are a luxury product and not everybody needs us so mm -hmm. it does keep you somewhat more i think centered when you see that mm -hmm. that truly i'm appealing to a very small population and it doesn't let your head get ahead of itself as such mm -hmm. so you describe yourself as making new world pinot noir i'm curious what exactly you, how exactly you describe new world pinot noir and what you're doing to support the production of new world pinot noir we always have these arguments too, or there's Northern Hemisphere versus Southern Hemisphere. <laughs> um, I think that you know, the, the idea is that we don't have the history of, of Pinot Noir making. We're still exploring and experiencing new areas, new vineyard sites, new clones, you know, how do they fit into our portfolio. And so we don't have a formula, we don't have a set go-to, we're still, every year we get a new vineyard site that I think looks great, we'll give it a couple of years, maybe it isn't great maybe it is great and so we're always exploring and still exploring all of that so I think that's how we're contributing is we're just trying to make and I always like to say this we're trying to make the best possible Oregon wine I'm not trying to make a Burgundian style Oregon wine we're trying to make an Oregon Willamette Valley the best possible Pinot Noir we can from the region in which we have centered ourselves mm -hmm. do you have a winemaking philosophy that you can describe 
I, I love wines that, first of all, I always feel like wine should smell great. It should smell great. And I don't understand if you have a wine that doesn't smell great, why would you want to drink it? And so many times people are like, will make excuses for a wine that doesn't smell good. You know, it's reduced or something like that. I'll let it be fine later. And it's like, well, but I'm not drinking it later. I'm, I'm drinking it right now. So we work really hard to make sure that our wines are very much um, approachable early on, but have longevity also. And so my philosophy is that you have to treat every vineyard in a, in a distinct and unique way that it, it, you have to honor what the ground is giving you. And so people talk about how wine is made in the vineyard. I do believe wine is made in the vineyard, but I also believe that wine needs to be guided in many years into a direction that's, that works for you stylistically. And so we tend to emphasize more of the freshness of fruit in the wine, but really looking for the textural mid-mouth feel with that liveliness and freshness to the wine, which I think Oregon Pinot is so good for our wines. Um, it just keeps them lively and, and, and prettier for longer, but yet the texturally they feel like they're much bigger wines. Mm. This question is for both of you, and it's what are some of the most fulfilling moments that you've had so far in the wine industry? Mm. Oh, yeah. Fulfilling. Um, I, I, harvest is always on the top of the list. I mean, when you have your interns and your crew, and you're you know four weeks in, and you sit down for this big harvest lunch mm -hmm. after you know five hours already, you know on the on the crush deck, it's it's rewarding because everyone there's this collaborative spirit, and. Um, I think those moments during harvest sometimes are, are a, a huge high yeah. in the industry. Um, Especially after a couple beers. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a, those are always moments that I, that I, I look back on um, and still hope to you know, have many more. But mm -hmm. for me, I, I, I go back to the physicality of just winemaking. You know, how many people get that opportunity you know, at 59 mm -hmm. to do that? Um, Certainly some of the winemaker dinners, we've had some interesting Experience. experiences, yes. Yeah. Um, I think one of my earliest memories, which you know, kind of gave you the high, was when I was in New York, when we had just first released, we had been at the Carlton Winemaker Studio, and so we had just bottled up more than just our, we have, um, we had started off with, it was just the Willamette Valley, and we did that from 98, 99, and 2000, 2001. Mm -hmm. And so in 2002, we moved to the Carlton Winemaker Studio and we expanded our project from a mere 800 cases to about 2,200 cases. And so now we had something to market and sell. And so very nervously, I go off to New York with our new distributor and we go into Per Se and they, they bought everything I had to sell. And so you're just like, I, feel, I felt so validated that you know I actually had a, a, a bottle mm -hmm. of wine and they loved it and they bought not only just one blend, they bought all four that we were actually selling that day. And so that was one of those things you come back and think, maybe we will be okay, that maybe mm -hmm. this is going to work. And so that was pretty exciting at that time mm -hmm. to walk into that experience. And I think we don't do it enough, um, but just walking into the building and sitting back and seeing all that yeah. we have accomplished, um, mm -hmm. it is a high. It's hard to find the time when you're there by yourself now. <laughs> it used to be all the time because it was either Ron or I and one other person, so it was easy to kind of just sit back and go, this is amazing. But now with 12 employees, they usually beat us in, so I don't have those moments in the morning where it's just me. Um, but yeah, we have to sit back and look at across the vineyard and the property and the gardens, and yeah. it is pretty amazing. Put it in perspective, yeah. Mm -hmm. What were some of the challenges that you had to overcome? Oh. Boy, I, I think, well, certainly working with distributors, that's always a mm -hmm. challenge. I mean, to find that match as far as values and, and, and goals 
you know, strategic goals. That's that's been challenging over the years, and that's that's constant. Um, and I think any winery would agree. Uh, what else? I think. For me, the, the challenging because emotionally it's draining and you just don't have any really, you don't have the control was when we went to finance yeah. the, the kind of the next phase of the winery and we're informed that basically the only way we could do this was put our home as collateral. And I remember crying, I still get emotional when I think about it. And you just kind of look at this going, oh my gosh. You know, we are we are all in now because right. our house is on the line too. And so, you know, sometimes I would struggle with that when we'd go to the winery and somebody would, you know, do something that I thought was somewhat wasteful and a little cavalier. And you're just thinking, my house, you know, my house, stop that. <laughs> so, you know, Ronald always have to say, calm down, calm down. You know? um, so those were the challenges in the earlier years is, you know, going out there and putting yourself all in. You mentioned the Willamette Valley Barrel Auction that's mm -hmm. coming up. Uh, yes. what are, what, tell me a little bit more about that and also what other current projects you're working on. Well, the idea behind this is that to raise funds to promote Pinot Noir in the Willamette Valley. And we, it's just trade. So the idea is we have 66 wineries involved, um, either 5, 10, or 20 case lots. And so just trade will be coming. Um, buying these special wines made specifically for the auction. Um, it's just time. It's time for us, at least in the Willamette Valley, to kind of take it to the next level. It's, it's, it's similar to Napa Premier. Um, last year they raised $6 million, which was, you know, phenomenal. Um, we hope to raise, at this point in time, you know, between Five to six hundred thousand dollars, and that money will go directly into marketing. Um, I think Oregon is just coming out of its adolescence as far as you know brand recognition. So we're just priming the you know ourselves right now to to, to move forward in, in marketing, and it's everyone's jumping again. It, it's, it goes back to the point where you have six to six wineries saying, "Yeah, we need to do this now. Let's do it. Let's get it done." exciting well I think the other thing that we're having a lot of fun with is the ability to do things at the winery that are not necessarily just all about wine and then yeah. Ron mentioned it earlier our IPNC dinner last year was the three top chef and we also had a music uh, band come and play and so being able to do that where you're you're reaching out a little bit differently than just wine let's just come drink mm -hmm. wine eat, eat you're actually getting a little more of an experience um, well, it was a fundraiser for fundraiser Children's, for Children's Cancer, Cancer Association. Association. So, yeah, we're moving in that direction also. Yeah. I yeah. think we're taking our success and sharing that. Yeah, and we put together blending seminars where we'll blend the barrel and then donate the barrel to the charitable organization so that then, you know, because we always get asked for auction wines constantly. Can you provide wine for my auction dinner? Well, this is kind of fun because now Children's Cancer Association just recently blended their own barrel. It was a fundraising event for Children's Cancer Association, and now they have the wine to serve at their auction dinners and so it was kind mm -hmm. of a, a, a double whammy as such it mm -hmm. was and that's that's fun that's mm -hmm. made, we made wine with the, the decembrists yeah and then so that <laughs> wine goes out and you know they're using that for fundraising um, how did that come about that came about through children's cancer association they have a program called called my music rx and so music is very important to us for us and so we're kind of taking that to the next level 
again, I just joined the board, and now um, we actually have a couple other bands, not to be named yet, <laughs> that want to do the same thing, but mm -hmm. they are Ron's ultimate is if Pearl Jam would come to the winery. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Eddie likes his, his red wine. So, you know, projects like that are fun. And, you know, we've worked so hard over the years. Now we're kind of reaping the benefits of, you know, being involved in community work. Where do you see Penarash evolving? Where do we see Penarash evolving? <laughs> I think we've, we've matured into our building, meaning that there's not much more we can do in that, that aspect. So, and then continuing to refine our, our, our brand and say that the tiers in that, that brand um, is probably our next project. Mm -hmm. I just feel like there's so many fantastic vineyard sites out there that could be standalone, speak for themselves. Um, so kind of working with our DTC team to see if we can't kind of start focusing more on the individual vineyard designations that we are currently working with so I can make more of those. Yeah. That's kind of the goal I have. So maybe just kind of tweaking the wine and, and focusing more on those sort of things which are fun for me as a winemaker to do. Um, I don't foresee us going any different direction as far as more varietals. We've always been really very focused on Pinot Noir and just a little bit of Viognier on the side because you need a white wine, which we consciously chose to be nothing like Pinot Gris or Chardonnay because we want it to be different. So that's why we produce our Viognier. Um, yeah, exploring those vineyards. I, you know, I don't know who, you might know who said this, but you know, the, uh, the best Oregon vineyard is yet to be planted. And so that just, you know, looks to the future. And I think yeah. Lynn is constantly looking at new vineyard sites and, and dirt. And, you know, so I, I think that's exciting. Yeah. Um, that's part of the growth. You know, it the optimism, the optimism it, it, within the industry. It conflicts a little with my other philosophy, though, which no vineyard should be more than 25 miles away from the winery because I don't want to have to drive that far. <laughs> yeah. But she's very pragmatic in that, I think, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And where do you see Oregon wine evolving? Oh, I just see it, it kind of, it's an upward, upward travel because there's just, there's so many exciting things. I mean, people are finally truly recognizing Oregon as a great mm -hmm. place. And I think that you're seeing like this influx, which is in a way a good influx because it's bringing more money and people who have the, the skills and, and experiences to take and continue to present Oregon in a bigger, better way. And I think we all benefit from that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, curious, one more question before we wrap up here. Did you have a moment uh, early in your career when you felt like you had like arrived, you felt like I can say I am a winemaker now. Ooh, that's a really tough question for me. <laughs> I think that um, Ron probably convinced me that of that because I don't think that I still feel like there's there's so many other things that I should do or could do or need to do, and so I'm, I, I I do tend to beat myself up a little mm -hmm. bit more that you know. I'll say to him, like, I don't know if I can do this. And he goes, why would you be able to do this? And so I still have that kind of self, a um, little bit of self-doubt self at times. That, you know, if, if he wasn't here being my cheerleader, I probably wouldn't have achieved as much as I have because I do need a kick in the butt every so often. Which actually I think is a trait as a winemaker. It, it, it's a positive trait because you're always learning and you don't always have the answers. It's, it's so typical, well, not typical, but there are winemakers that, you know, I'll be in the back of the room, and um, I am just amazed at what they say with such confidence <laughs> because it's, you know, there's, 
it's a lifelong pursuit in the sense that you can constantly be better and get better, but to make definitive statements sometimes is just pure arrogance. Mm. And, and to a certain point, a bit naive. And so I think that's one of Lynn's strengths is that she's always questioning, you know, well, let's, what if, what if we did this? Um, that's not what so, you say when I drive you crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what if? But, you know, it, it again, it's not uncommon to see, you know, 10 or 15 experiments every vintage. Well, I mean, it's, it's really funny because I know I do it every single year, but every single year harvest starts and I go through that moment of, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know, you know, I don't know how I'm going to get through this vintage. And Ron just looks at me and hands me a glass of bourbon and just says, just sit down. You yeah. know? <laughs> and you I, pay. I'm like, okay, I'm good now again. But I mean, come on, I'm, this will be my 35th vintage, this vintage coming up, 29 of them in the state of Oregon. And every time vintage starts, you're just like, okay, am I ready? Do I know what I'm doing? Am, am I completely prepared? But I think that's also what keeps you on edge. It's not mm -hmm. cookbook. You can't just rely on what you did last yeah. year. You have to be ready to respond. And I think that's where winemakers fail is that they just think like last year's going to be the same as next year and they don't have to worry about anything and they're not prepared. And when it's a ready vintage, my God, we are so prepared. We have everything that I can think of ready just in case. And so we're able to respond for whatever comes our way. And I think it's, it's proved well. I mean, we did not falter in 2007. We did not falter in 2011. And the 2013s are really nice wines. And if you look back at the press before those wines were released, mm -hmm. it was basically doomsday. And we don't have doomsday wines. Some of the wines from those vintages are very much requested by people because they are gorgeous wines. So mm -hmm. I, I always go back to, you know, when I played ball, baseball, um, that I remember an interview with Ted Williams, arguably, arguably the you know, best hitter ever in baseball. And, and the interviewer said, well, so what do you, what's going through your head when you step into the batter's box? And Williams said, well, every time I go to bat, I have a few butterflies. And so here's a guy that, you know, that is, again, I, in my opinion, the best hitter ever in baseball, he was a little bit on edge every time mm -hmm. he stepped into the batter's box. And I think that's important for winemakers, and Lynn certainly follows that path. Mm -hmm. What advice would you have for a young person entering the wine industry, or maybe even not young, but a new person to the wine industry? I think it's very important that they actually spend time apprenticing and working. Every harvest is different. Um, you can't just assume because you've worked one vintage. I mean, we look at beer versus wine. I mean, beer, you blow it, you dump it down the drain, you start again tomorrow. Um, wine, you don't have that opportunity. It comes at you, it comes at you fast. You have to make decisions on your feet. And so getting that kind of experience, I always encourage people to travel. You work for me in Oregon, go work in New Zealand. Then go work in Germany. Go do something else. And, and as, as a young person, that was advice that I was not given, nor was I able to actually do that. And I kind of mm -hmm. wish I was able to have done that. So every young person that comes and works for us, you know, they'll ask, you know, what should I do next? I'm like, go do a different vintage in a different country and experience it because it just gives you a broader knowledge than to bring back and have in your toolkit. Yeah. Be humble. Mm -hmm. Be open. Listen to people. Yeah, I was told the other day that we've always listened. We may not have always taken the advice, but we've always listened. And that was, you know, this person was honored that we've always at least listened to them. Mm -hmm. Even though we didn't necessarily follow their advice every time, we at least considered it. And I think that's, it's a good point. Listen. Kind of true for anybody entering any, yeah. any industry. That's a good advice. <laughs> yeah. 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 Anything else? 
That's all the questions we have. Is there anything that we've forgotten? Anything we should have asked? Anything you'd like to add? Well, these are always interesting because it's like, then we drive home and think about all the, oh, she said something about. No, I think uh -huh. that, you know, it's just, it's been an amazing journey for, for both of us. And I just, I can't still can believe that, I don't think we ever believed that we would be as large as we are with as many people. And I think people are taken by surprise when they, they sit down and talk to us and realize that, you know, we're not making 5,000 cases anymore. We're making 15,000 cases. Mm -hmm. and. We never really had that on our kind of growth curve at all. It just kind of organically happened. Mm -hmm. Well, excellent. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more and stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.